With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hi, I'm Ron Barr, and this is today's edition of Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8Side Network. Time to check in with Brian Billick as we do each week for Inside the Game, the Super Bowl winning coach who you've seen on the Fox Sports Network and also the NFL Network as well. And a very interesting week number 10, but it seems like, Brian, we say that every week because this is a very unusual season. Uh, Anything that you're seeing as far as a trend? Well, a trend other than that there are a lot of good teams and that all the good teams seem to have flaws. I mean, last week, Ron, we talked about the number of games that were the spread was seven and a half or more. Half half the games had large spreads, but it began with the Thursday night where the Ravens, who were seven and a half point favorites, losing, not just not covering the point spread, losing to the Dolphins 22 to 10. And then you have the Bucks, who were nine and a half point favorites over Washington losing. Yeah, the Cardinals that were that same nine and a half point favorite uh, over the Panthers. I think what it is, the league has always been kind of a homogeneous curve meaning that everybody's kind of lumped in a couple games above or below 500. There are certainly outliers, and we have that here on the negative side. Certainly teams like Detroit, Houston, Jacksonville, the Jets. You know, that's typical that you're going to have a handful of teams that just aren't very good. But but you typically have one or at least one or two, maybe three teams that are on the other side of the curve that are really, really good. And you can, you know, Kansas City the last couple of years. Uh, we thought maybe the Rams were going to be that. Two weeks ago, we thought the Rams were that one outlier. But here they come up uh, with a couple shocking losses as well. So I think it just says that it, the, the top half of the league is very, very close. And on any given week, it's anybody's game. Playing 17 games in a season now, we know what it takes uh, to be able to play 16 games and now 17. How do you think that might affect the rest of the schedule and ga- game play? Uh, it'll be interesting the latter part as we get into December, how teams allocate their players. It's certainly not like the NBA where you're just going to sit players down. Uh, and, and like we do when we get to the last game or, you know, when a team has secured its playoff position and it sits down at starting quarterback. But but it is going to be a factor. We're going to have to see how teams dole that out, how they approach that extra game. And it sounds like, you know, well, it's just one extra game. Uh, but you have an enhanced playoff picture as well, and you have a lot of teams. Uh, the good thing is, is with that many games, there's going to be a number of teams that are able to kind of stay alive. Uh, when you look in the AFC right now, going into it, uh, we've got half the half the AFC is above 500, with a couple teams right at 500. In the NFC, not maybe not quite as much. Uh, but so there are a lot of teams that are very, very much involved this week coming up. is going to be interesting because now you're going to start to see some separations of those teams that are around that 500 area and, and the team that's going to go one above 500 or one below 500. You know, as you take a look at the San Francisco 49ers, there was a lot of expectations for that team and they realized those expectations in the Monday night game against the Rams. And it just verified something you've said. And I've said as well is 
that the identity of the 49ers is being able to run the football. When they went to the Super Bowl, they were able to dictate the tempo of the game. They were able to be a dominant running team, which then set up their passing game. And last night uh, was very the very first time uh, that they've you know been able to do that this season. Uh, did you see that uh, as a as an omen in a sense? I mean, did they get back to their personality to some degree with what they did against the Rams last night? Well, they sure hope so, particularly against a good. This wasn't like this was a, a, a below-the-line team. The Rams' mm-hmm. defense is for real. They ran the ball 44 times for 156 yards. Garoppolo only had to throw the ball 19 times, and he completed 15 of them uh, for two touchdowns. So and, and everything across the board, you could see they just controlled. They had the ball for almost 40 minutes. So the Rams, when they got the ball, were really pressed that uh, to you know did not get a three and out. And they were only three of 10 were the Rams on third down, where the 49ers were eight of 14. And then all you have to do is go down and you look at the red zone. That was going to be a factor as well. The, the, the 49ers scored both times they were down there. The, the, the Rams got down there, but they were only one of four in terms of uh, touchdowns in the red zone. So, yeah, everything tilted towards this is the formula for the 49ers. If they can duplicate that, dominate the time of possession, convert on third down, run the ball, uh, and not give up the big play. That's the other thing I think that jumped out at me, where the Rams and Stafford and that group and Cup and Jefferson have been kind of having their way of it. Uh, they really only had two big plays, and, and uh, that bodes well for the defense as well. When you were the head coach of the Baltimore Ravens, did you ever publicly say, we are the stupidest football team in in the league, like Bruce Arians did say about uh, his ball club? Well, I probably did because I was known for saying a bunch of stupid stuff. But uh, and and I think and Bruce probably included he and his staff in there as well, right? Saying you know because that's that's the the cliche thing now. Coach will stand up and say this is my fault, it's my responsibility. We weren't ready, uh, you know, kind of we're in this thing together. Uh, but that was a head scratcher as well when you're talking about a Tampa Bay team that's been playing as well as they have. Washington obviously has had some issues, although defensively they are a capable football team. Uh, but the fact, and, and it's not like they, you know, we just talked about how the Ram form or the 49er formula, the Ram, the Redskins, or excuse me, the Washington football team, you know, did not run the ball particularly well. They ran the ball enough. The problem was Tampa Bay couldn't run the ball at all. They got into that loop. We talk about it all the time, Ron, that when you get into a, a, a loop of kind of three and out and the other team kind of holds on to it, Redskins had the ball for almost 40 minutes as well compared to that Rams 49er game as well. So what was happening with Tampa Bay is they weren't getting a lot of possessions, and when they did – a couple three and outs and all of a sudden you're behind the chains and you end up with a 29-19 loss, which is a real head scratcher that Washington was able to pull this off. And quarterbacks uh, coming back into play, Aaron Rodgers, Wilson for Seattle, but uh, Seattle gets shut out. And that's the first time in Wilson's career that uh, he has been shut out as the starting quarterback. Uh, What did you see in that game? What, What were the things that jumped out at you? Well, we talked about it last week, Ron. There's no team in the league that's more dependent on its quarterback play than Seattle. I mean, every team is. Uh, that, that, that's a given. But, but Seattle, it's all Russell Wilson, and they have very little else but Russell Wilson. And he just, you know, after with the finger, uh, he was 20 of 40. And you could see they, too, where the Green Bay was kind of chewing up the clock and, and Aaron Rodgers uh, looked very proficient. They ran the ball for better than 100 yards. 
Rodgers threw for almost 300. He did have uh, an interception, which is uncharacteristic. But you could see where Russell Wilson, a lot of times, just kind of threw the ball up. Now, they do that, and he does that probably as good as any quarterback in the league in terms of throwing up balls that have a low completion percentage. But there again, this recurring theme here. Green Bay had the ball for 39 minutes. So Seattle, on the road, got into a position where once they got the ball, it's like, boy, we got to have, we, we got to make it happen right now. Cause we may not see it again for another four five, six, seven minutes. And, and you could tell Russell Wilson was pressing. So Seattle's just not a very good football team right now. And, and they got to get Russell Wilson back and healthier than he was the other night. I think anybody been listening to us, they know how you feel about winning road games. And I think that the Kansas city chiefs victory uh, over Kansas city, over the Raiders, I should say, uh, was pretty dominant, pretty impressive. Six explosive plays. Uh, what do you? What, what did you see different with Kansas City uh, than what we've seen up to this particular point? Well, just that for the last few weeks, Ron, we've been talking about it. The lack of explosive plays from Kansas City, two and three a game, and they've acknowledged that that it just it just hasn't. You know, we're so used to it the last couple of years, expecting Patrick Mahomes to pull out a. 20, 30, 40, 50 yard bomb or big play to Kelsey or Hill, uh, Hardman, the big players they can get down the field. Uh, and it just hasn't happened. Uh, but they had six plays of over 20 yards to six different players. That tells you everybody. It's not like one player just got hot and Kelsey had a bunch of big plays down the field. Uh, they all had a hand in it. So they they looked like Kansas City of old. And for the rest of the AFC, they hope this isn't a harbinger of what's going forward because they, they sure looked like they were a team that kind of got that swag back. We have a little bit over a minute left before we have to break. But uh, I'm impressed, as I'm sure you are, about New England. They roll right along. They're now 6-4. and four. And they manhandled Cleveland 45-7. to seven. Uh, Jones, we've talked about him before, but what are you seeing that in, indicates to you that he's establishing himself as a very credible NFL quarterback? Well, and this was a perfect case. Now, they ran for 184 yards. So if you run for 184 yards, your quarterback's going to have a mm-hmm. lot of opportunities to play off of that. Uh, and 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 that's and that answers your question directly. He only threw the ball 23 times, which a lot of times rookie, you know, you want to keep him on that 25, 30 pitch count. He only threw it 23 times, but he completed 19 for almost 200 yards and three touchdowns. So he augmented the running game when he did throw the ball with great deal of success. Uh, and and they got to the quarterback. Uh, the defense did a great job getting to the quarterbacks in Cleveland. They had five sacks. Um, and, and were able to fall, uh, force turnovers. So New England, now they were at home, but uh, they, they, again, as we keep saying, they, they've got to be the surprise team in the NFL right now. I don't know that anybody expected this with a rookie Mac Jones under center. Inside the game with Brian Billick, who, of course, a uh, Super Bowl winning coach of his own right when he was the head man with the Baltimore Ravens. And when we come back, we'll take a look ahead as week number 11, key game, Dallas against Kansas City. We'll talk about that and some of the other key matchups as we continue on Sports Byline. You're listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off, grand slam, or a base hit to center field. 
Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Another big weekend coming up in the National Football League. And as I alluded before the break, Dallas against Kansas City, the key interconference game. Break it down for me, Brian. Well, you have two teams that are playing very well right now. Dak Prescott looks like he's back and healthy. They had the running game cranked up against Atlanta, uh, and it was an outstanding performance on their part. Dak Prescott threw the ball 35 times, even though they ran the ball very, very well, almost 40 times. Uh, but with that, Dak Prescott threw the ball 35 times for over 300 yards, two touchdowns, no sacks, no interceptions. And equally as important, particularly as we talk about Kansas City, the Dallas defense limited uh, Matt Ryan and that offense to just one explosive play. So that that's going to be the case, the, the case for, for Dallas. If they can keep that balance, run the ball with, with, uh, the, with Elliott and, and Pollard, and obviously Dak Prescott can be as efficient the way he was, getting the ball downfield with both the big, big plays and converting on third down, and not give up the big plays that can't have been absent from Kansas City up until last week when they had six explosive plays. That's got to be the game plan for Dallas. If they do, then they got a chance of, of, of beating Kansas City. Aaron Rodgers back for the second straight game after his suspension of COVID. And uh, there's going to be the Green Bay Packers going on the road to take on Minnesota. Minnesota trying to keep themselves relevant in the sense they did a good job. They get a victory against the Chargers. So how do you see this matchup? Of course, Minnesota, Kirk Cousins has been has been typical Kirk Cousins. At times, very, very good. At times, not. Last week, on the road, we talked, we talk, Ron, about the ability to win on the road. Minnesota going into the L.A. Chargers. And Kirk Cousins was 25 of 37 for almost 300 yards, two touchdowns. Equally important, again, here's a team that ran the ball well. Dalvin Cook looked like the Dalvin Cook of old. Ran the ball for almost 100 yards. So when they get that balance going, that's um, going to challenge the defense that Green Bay, who looked very, very good the other night. Uh, but I think the balance of Minnesota is going to challenge that Green Bay defense a little more than they've had in the last couple of weeks. Speaking of uh, Tampa Bay, of course, they're going to be playing host to the New York Giants after their stinker against Washington. What does a team have to do to get that confidence back and, and erase kind of that memory of a bad ball game that they probably should have won? Yeah, it's just like Al David, late Al Davis, you say, just win, baby. I mean, <laughs> they just they they know what that looks like. Uh, Washington and and everybody talks about a trap game, you know. And I only believed in that so much. I mean, it's not like the players were conscious of it. It's little things when you're playing a team that struggles like Washington has. Uh, you're playing as well as Tampa Bay. Uh, they are a capable defensive team now. There's no question. And Washington, uh, you know. Uh, they're a team that has some assets, particularly on defense, but they just didn't look like they were connecting. They they only ran the ball 13 times, did Tampa Bay. Uh, Tom Brady threw the ball effectively, efficiently. He did have the two interceptions. Uh, and there again, they, they had only the two big plays down the field. So well, you got to give Washington credit, but I think Tampa Bay will be very motivated against the New York Giants team that also, you know, you can look at and go, well, how good really are the Giants? But uh, clearly after the game they had against Washington, uh, they're not going to have any problem getting their focus of the players and not let this be the second trap game in a row. Detroit now not unwinning as they tied last weekend, and they're going to be taking on Cleveland. 
Tell me about the locker room, what you as a head coach or any head coach would have to look for when you have a team that not only hadn't won a game, but then all of a sudden when you get into a game, you end up tying it. Yeah, it's it's almost, you know, the, the distinction is embarrassing, so to speak, is that, yeah. well, okay, so we haven't lost them all. Um, you know, yeah, the old joke used to be uh, you always wanted to get one. If you had a losing season, at least get a tie because then you could say uh, our record, oh, 10 and one, <laughs> you know, you, you kind of <laughs> drop that O to begin with. Uh, Detroit is, again, kind of the black hole of the NFL right now. It, it just seems like go there and things just disappear. They're not a very good football team. Dan Campbell's really struggling to hold on to the attention and the belief of the players that they can be better. Uh, you know, Pittsburgh was obviously without uh, their quarterback, without Roethlisberger. Rudolph had to throw the ball 50 times. You don't want your backup quarterback throwing the ball 50 times. Again, uh, they ran the ball pretty decently, as did Detroit. Ran, Detroit ran for 229 yards. Uh, Jared Goff was kind of ineffective, 15, uh, 14 of 25 for 114 yards, no touchdowns. Uh, he got sacked four times. So just kind of an ugly game. And and Pittsburgh is that team now in that gray area that, boy, going forward, the margin for error is very, very tight because the AFC, uh, even though Baltimore lost, Cincinnati, Cleveland, they're all right there. And they're all going to start playing one another here uh, after the next couple of weeks. So it, uh, it becomes very real for Pittsburgh in the AFC North. I think we can say that the Indianapolis Buffalo game is going to be a telling game for both teams. Now there's just a one win separating the two, Buffalo at six and three, and and at five and five, so two games. Uh, you've got the Indianapolis Colts there. So how do you see this one shaking out? It's interesting because Indianapolis is a team, and they're the classic better than their five and five. Yeah, runners. Carson Wentz looks to be getting more and more comfortable. They're running the ball. The defense is kind of getting uh, getting back in its uh, flow. Uh, Buffalo is again kind of a unique team. We keep t- talking about these teams clearly an outlier in the AFC. They're as good as anybody in the AFC. They have been dominant. But then you have a head-scratcher like the loss to Jacksonville. And where did that come ba- come from? Now, they get back into the division. They play the Jets and kind of right themselves. Josh Allen got back to just a brilliant performance. 21 of 28 for better than 350 yards and two touchdowns. I mean, that, that's, that's incredible. They ran uh, for better 139 yards. The defense was absolutely stifling. Uh, the young quarterback, White, who everybody was all uh, you know excited about, it kind of came back to came back to earth, so to speak. Had to throw the ball forty four times, had four interceptions. So uh, I, I'm sure the talk about him replacing uh, uh, Zach Wilson is going to kind of disappear now in the New York airwaves. Uh, but Buffalo looked like the dominant team that they should be. Uh, but this is going to be a good game because Buffalo clearly is one of the best teams in the AFC, and I think Indianapolis has a complete game seem to be getting their stride, and now they're going to test it against maybe the best team in the AFC. I know you think that Cincinnati and Vegas in their matchup, both of them obviously desperate for a win, but would this mean that maybe the loser would be out of it? Uh, It's too early to say you're definitively out of it, but you can see it from here. Yeah, I mean, it's (laughs) it's going to be one of those deals. with with, Both teams are at five and four. 
uh, excuse me, uh, yeah, yeah, five and four. So someone's going to get healthy at five and five, someone uh, or six and four, and and someone else is going to go uh, and 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 be at five and five. Now that's not that much of a separation. You can still climb your way out of it, but the way the AFC right now, because you got on the top end with Tennessee, Buffalo, Baltimore, Kansas City, Pittsburgh, New England, uh, even you know th- these are good solid teams. They're going to be hard to catch. Uh, and and so and Kansas City looks like maybe they've gotten their stride back, so they're going to be in the in the the middle of that wild card playoff spot. And so so what does that also mean? It means head to head is that much more important. It may come down that the loser of this game is eliminated from the playoffs because the winner gets the head to head if you become that seventh playoff team. And you got Baltimore at six and three, coming off of a real stinker as well. I think it's really important for them to get back uh, in what they do best as they go up against Chicago. I didn't quite understand uh, how they could stink up the place the way that they did against the opponent that they did. I mean, uh, is there anything that you saw that you'd be concerned about? Well, it was the perfect storm of an undervalued opponent. Uh, Miami can be a tough place to play. There's something about going to South Beach and down in there that just, I don't know, changes your focus. It was on a short week. Clearly, Baltimore did not have the answer for the blitz package that Brian Flores pulled out, and he was all in. All it would take is a couple shots down the field, and you'd have broken that defense, but they couldn't get it. All they got was the underneath stuff. Lamar Jackson averaged 5.5 per completion, which is just not going to get it done. They'll give you that all day long. Uh, and then Tua came in, gave him a little bit of a spark, although the Baltimore defense did play very well, held him to under 60 yards rushing, uh, they were like three of 13 on third down one of four or whatever in the red zone. So the defense played pretty good, but the offense just did not, could not crack the code. And so naturally you're going to see that you're going to continue to see this kind of pressure, particularly from a team like Chicago until you can get that big play down the field. All it takes is one or two and you'll chase them out of that defense. Uh, so they've got to show that when they see that opportunity, Lamar Jackson's got to get them into a protection mode that gives him just a little bit more time to throw the ball and hurt that zero blitz coverage down the middle of the field. We've got 40 seconds. San Francisco trying to make it two in a row as they head out on the road against Jacksonville. Well, it's a good team to get healthy against. Jacksonville still is struggling, and and we've talked about how the formula for the 49ers has been and is now the same. Run the ball win them with time of possession, Garoppolo being very efficient with the throws that he does have, uh, defense not giving up the big play. So, you know, Jack, this is a this is a good team for San Francisco to continue to try to get healthy because uh, they too now, like a lot of teams, are in that cusp. You know, they're fighting to get back to 500 here uh, and, and struggle with some of those teams that are going to be in the back end, whether it's New Orleans, Carolina, Minnesota. These are teams that are going to be around that seventh playoff spot and uh, Minnesota, or excuse me, uh, uh, San Francisco, they can't really afford to lose to a game like a team like Jacksonville because of some of the teams they have coming up. Okay, we'll talk to you next week, Coach. Thanks a lot. Sounds great. Inside the game with Brian Billick. We continue with more of you and America's sports talk show. At Bed 365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. 
Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast. Glenn Stout joins us on Sports Byline, picking up where the best American sports writing left off. Series editor Glenn Stout teamed up with Triumph Books to launch the new annual series called The Year's Best Sports Writing. Now, I quote, the inaugural edition of the year's best sports writing shows how the craft of writing shined during a year unlike any other. The piece is chosen from a son sharing a ball game with the late father that he never met in the form of a cardboard cutout to life inside the NBA's Orlando bubble to an examination of how college football programs across America navigated through a season played during a pandemic exemplify how today's most talented writers documented a year of pause seasons, also empty stadiums, and difficult questions about the role of sports in our society. Glenn, first of all, what criteria was used in picking the year's best sports writing? Well, Ron, I've always used the same criteria for as long as I've been doing this, and I try to keep it very simple. But after reading a story once, I try to pick those stories that I want to read again because I think I owe it to the reader to to try to put together a book full of stories that they don't just read once and discard, but that they read and then maybe reread and then maybe tell a friend, hey, you've got to read this. Um, So I just try to follow my own interests and pick stories that I want to read twice. In all the years that you've been doing this, I wonder if you've found, even though I know the subjects for the sports uh, writing are different, but uh, have you find a, found a commonality in these outstanding stories? Well, yeah, I do. I think there's a few things that, that any good story has, and, and one is the writer is confident from the very start. They know the story they're setting out to write. They're not uh, wandering around and trying to find it, but they're just very confident in their approach and very confident in knowing the story they want to tell. You know, and I work with a lot of younger writers, and, and one of the things you have to learn is what story are you actually trying to tell? Well, I think the writers in this book, uh, they know the stories they want to tell, and even more so, they know why they want to tell them. They know why they're important. I also think this is an observation on my part, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, Glenn, is that they know how to connect to the story. Well, that's true, too. I mean, you know, you get into this business maybe because you love sports, maybe because you love writing, and I think at a certain point you realize that what you're really doing while you're really writing is that the only way we get to know each other is through the telling of stories. And when a writer tells a story, that allows the readers to connect not only with the story, but to connect with each other and tell that story to somebody else, share that story with somebody else. And when we start sharing stories with one another, that's when strangers no longer become strangers. And that's the real value in the work is that it brings people together. It makes those connections it turns strangers into friends. You have been doing this a very long time, so you're the perfect person to ask about this. Tell me about the landscaping of sports writing, how it has changed. Well, it has changed um, 
pretty dramatically. I mean, you know, when the sports collection series, the best American sports writing that I worked on, when that began back in 1990, you know, that was, you were primarily looking at stories from newspapers. Um, you know, not just the, the daily newspapers, but also those Sunday supplements, the Sunday magazines that almost every daily newspaper had. And then you had a wide variety of you know, of magazines, of general interest magazines that published a lot of sports writing, and then some of the giants of the industry then, Sports Illustrated or Sport Magazine. You know, there was no dearth of, of, of sports writing out there. You know, today things have changed a lot. The newspapers have scaled back dramatically. There are many, many fewer magazines than there used to be, and they produce uh, much less work. And you have the rise of the Internet and now sort of the collapse of the Internet. You know, there was a much uh, more lively sports writing on the Internet even five years ago than there is today due to the economics of trying to discover a way to make money with stories. Um, so it has changed. But the one thing that hasn't changed is really the commitment of the writers to find those good stories. Um, that's what hasn't ended. I talk to younger writers today and I tell them, you might have a problem finding a place to publish a story today, but you won't have any problem finding stories because there are a lot of stories right now simply going untold uh, simply because there are not as many people in the field now as there used to be because there aren't as many places to publish and to earn a living doing this. Let me follow up on the Internet because I think that has had great influence in sports reporting as well as sports writing as well, Glenn. And, and I really feel it's kind of dumbed down the audience. How many people read the Wall Street Journal these days as compared to going on the Internet and getting something in about 30 seconds? Uh, how has that affected writing? And, I mean, how have writers looked upon the Internet? Because I think sometimes, at least some of the writing that I've read, and writers get lazy when they publish something. It's not as in-depth. It doesn't have a feel to the story. Am I correct about that? Well, I think I think to a degree you are. I mean, that's not to say there isn't some really, really fine writing that's done online. There is. But there's an awful lot of, li of, of writing that's done online that's, that's, that's written for a smaller audience that doesn't feel like it has to be really good. It just has to be pretty good. And, and you know, it's kind of easy to get away with uh, something that's a little bit less rigorous. Um, that's a little bit less lasting. And I suppose, you know, in a book like this, I have to look for those stories that are lasting, um, that will have some resonance, not just today, but tomorrow as well. You know, so much of what uh, appears online is sort of fungible. It's there and it's gone, and who cares if you think about it again? You're just putting out that dreaded word, content. Uh, I think the stories in this book are not content. They have content, and that's a big difference. You know, I take a look at the list uh, that I have here of the stories that are in this book, and I am assuming that they're all uh, not Internet stories. Am I correct about that? Right. There's a, there's a mix. There's some stories from magazines. There's some stories from the online world. There's some stories from newspapers. Um, there's stories by very, very well-established writers like Tom Verducci or Jason Stark or, or, or Wright Thompson. And there's stories there by people you've never heard of about people you've never heard of. Uh, you know, sports is so enormous in this country and covers so much territory. Um, 
that it's a really big umbrella we work with. <laughs> and, 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 you know, that's one of the joys of the book is, yeah, you're going to have some stories about, you know, baseball and basketball and football, but you're gonna, also going to have stories about things you've never heard of before um, that are no less compelling and interesting. Glenn Stout is with us, and we're talking about an outstanding book. We're going to make it a selection of the month on the Sports Byline Book Corner, and I urge everyone to check it out. It's called The Year's Best Sports Writing. Let me ask you about a couple of stories, one one off the Internet that we were talking about. A nameless hiker in the case the Internet can't crack by Nicholas Thompson. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, that's a story about uh, a fellow who, you know, went hiking and, you know, went missing and was discovered, you know, deceased, and they couldn't figure out who he was. Uh, and in this day and age where everybody, you know, leaves a, a, a digital footprint somewhere, um, they just really couldn't discover who this fellow was. There were pictures other hikers had taken of him, people had interacted with him, they'd talked to him. Yet when they went to try to find out, you know, who this poor fellow was that passed away, you know, in his tent, they couldn't discover who he was. But, of course, you know, the Internet and publishing being what it is, after the story was published, they actually did then discover who he was. But it's, a, it's an interesting tale, you know, uh, hiking, I consider it a sport. Uh, uh, maybe some people don't, but I think we've all gone out in the woods and just wanted to walk away from it all. Well, this is a story about what happens when somebody actually does that. There is another story by Brian Phillips that is very uh, insightful, and it's headlined or it's named, Kobe Always Showed His Work, So We Have To in remembering him, too. What touched you about that story? Well, what touched me about that story is, you know, there was a lot, there were a lot of stories written about Kobe Bryant after he passed. And, you know, some stories just, you know, were very laudatory. You know, he just passed away. Let's just talk about the good things. Other stories brought up the fact that, you know, Kobe did have a star-crossed pass. He did have the sexual assault charge. He wasn't a uh, Superman. He wasn't a perfect human being. Um, and I think Brian Phillips' story really captured that sort of uncomfortable position we many of us felt because you really admired him as an athlete. You really admired him as a person, particularly the way he'd been carrying himself in recent years. Yet there was this other side of him that, you know, gave you a little bit of pause. Well, as human beings, none of us are perfect. Uh, as human beings, you know, all of us have things that, you know, we wish we could had been better. Uh, and I think Philip's story kind of touches onto that, that, you know, you can still admire someone and you can still accept the fact that they're not perfect. And I think, you know, that's Kobe Bryant, uh, an amazing basketball player, in some ways an amazing person, also in some ways a flawed person, and hopefully someone who got better over time as a human being. Uh, so it really gives you, I think, Kobe Bryant in full rather than, you know, a hagiographic biography that just says he's wonderful or someone that just says, oh, we can't even speak about him because he did some bad things. You know, you get the full portrait of him uh, in that story, I think. I've known Archie Manning and the family for a very long time, and Wright Thompson's story, The Inheritance of Archie Manning, which angle did he take on that story? 
the angle he took is to is to talk about the <laughs> about the fathers and sons, and it's not just Archie and his two sons, but it's Archie's father and Archie, and and talking about what they left each other, and you know what's what's touching about the story is of course is that is that Archie's father committed suicide when Archie was a, was a young man, and how that marked Archie. And how that's, I think, probably marked how Archie has treated his sons and feels about his family. It's a, it's a very intimate story. Yeah, it's about football, but it's about family. You know, uh, years ago, one of the uh, guest editors for the previous series, he said to me one time, said, let's face it, Glenn. He says, we really don't care about sports. He says, we just like to write about sports because it lets us write about other things we really care about. And I think Wright's story is a, is a perfect example of that because it's a story about family. Now, let me ask you about one more, and that is the most magical place on earth. Now, am I assuming correctly that's not about Disney World, or is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, not really, but sort of. Uh, yeah, that's a great story by Taylor Rooks, and, you know, she was embedded with the NBA players during the pandemic. And, you know, it was a, it was something that everybody had to deal with last year in their own way. And not every book in the collection is about the pandemic or touches on the pandemic, but some do. You can't, certainly can't ignore that it, that it happened. And her story is just kind of like, tells the story of the, the, the human reaction that all these players had being cooped up together, being forced to live together. A lot of the barriers that, uh, seem to, you know, exist everywhere now. What's interesting to me is that you see in that story how those started to break down and how some real friendships were made and people who you would not expect to become friendly with one another did. And, you know, this recognition, at least for a short period of time, that we're all in this together. We only have 40 seconds left. What do you want people to take away from this book? I just wanted to take away from the book the fact that, you know, sports is something we share with each other. You know, this is a book that, uh, you know, fathers and mothers have been giving their children for Christmas and their sons have been giving to their fathers and mothers for Christmas for 30 years. And the the reason behind that and the why, reason why that works is because it gives us something to talk about. And all these writers, you know, have told great stories that give us all something to talk about that allow us to find, you know, commonality, something we all like together. I think that's really, really important. Congratulations, Glenn. You're welcome here anytime on Sports Byline. I hope we have a chance to talk next year when the next edition of it comes out. This is a very important and a wonderful book. Congratulations to you and your staff on uh, publishing it. Well, thank you very much, Ron. I really enjoyed this. Again, Glenn Stout, I hope you'll check out this book. It uh, is an outstanding book. It's called The Year's Best Sports Writing, and it's got some great stories in it. One, their son's heart saved his life, so he rode 1,426 miles to meet them. Again, it's called The Year's Best Sports Writing. We continue across the country and around the world. It's good to have you with us here on Sports Byline. You have been listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8Side Network.
At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.